Hi, and welcome to Bookable Space, the audio literary salon. Author of Remembered, I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. I'm a writer, host, presenter, academic, and a reader. I love being read to. In each podcast episode, a writer will read to us and answer three questions. We might talk about how they developed the characters, the sense of place, why they wrote the book, something they learned through research, and more. Ultimately, through each episode, I hope to get to know each author a little more, and I hope that you do too. Each episode is about 30 minutes. You'll find the author's bio and a bit about the book below the episode. Thanks for joining in. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. We're joined today by Robert Rosen. Robert will be reading to us from and talking about his book, A Brooklyn Memoir. Robert, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here, Yvonne. Oh, it's wonderful. So we're just going to dive right in. Can you please tell us a bit about A Brooklyn Memoir? Brooklyn Memoir is set in the Flappish neighborhood of Brooklyn in the mid-1950s to the mid-1960s. I describe it as from the final days of the Brooklyn Dodgers to the coming of the Beatles. And this is really post-World War II Brooklyn, where for whatever reason, a lot of Holocaust survivors moved to Flappish and there were also a lot of World War II veterans who fought the Nazis living there, including my father. And because of that, and because of the proximity in time to when the war ended, it was like World War II hung over Flappish like a mass hallucination. And, you know, a day didn't go by when you didn't hear people talking about the Nazis and the war and the Holocaust. And for many years, this is something I tried not to think about. I just like put this all in the past and I didn't want to think about it. And what surviving the Holocaust and fighting in World War II did was it filled people with anger and hatred of pretty much everybody who is not part of the tribe, the tribe being Jews. It was a very Jewish neighborhood, a predominantly Jewish neighborhood. And it only occurred to me as I was writing the book that the whole neighborhood was suffering from an epidemic of PTSD. And, you know, that is what the book is about. It's black humor. It was a racist segregated neighborhood. And, you know, I describe all this in a visceral way in the book. And, you know, it was something that eventually I felt I had to escape from and did. Wow. Could we hear from the book, please? Sure. This is how the book starts. It's from the first chapter. It's called The Goyim and the Jews. First of all, I didn't call them Goyim. My parents and grandparents called them goyim. I knew what the word meant. I knew hundreds of Yiddish words, maybe a thousand. I just never used them because they sounded too Jewish. Yiddish was the language old Jews spoke when they didn't want young Jews to understand what they were saying. So I didn't call the goyim anything, even though our building was full of them. Mostly they were Catholics, like the Kugans, 
who lived on the ground floor. At first, there were five Coogans, James Sr., Mary, Stephanie, James Jr., and Christopher. Then, when I was five, Gary was born. And soon after that, Mary, who my mother called the Shiksa, was pregnant again. It began to seem as if she were popping out a new kid as often as the dog Queenie was popping out a litter, which was just about every year. Why does Mary have so many babies? I asked my mother, who had only me. Because they're Catholic, she said, which, as far as she was concerned, explained everything I needed to know about Catholics in general and the Coogans in particular, like why they hung over every bed in their apartment, a bloody, agonized Jesus on a cross that horrified me every time I went to visit them and eat their goyim food slathered in goyim condiments, or why James Jr., Stephanie, and Christopher went to Holy Innocence rather than PS 249 where they learned that the Jews killed Christ, but they didn't seem to hold me personally responsible, or why Mary washed out James Jr.'s and Christopher's mouths with soap every time they took the Lord's name in vain. This was a punishment my mother held over my own head like the sword of Damocles, should she ever hear a dirty word spout from my lips. But she never inflicted this cruelty upon me, not because she never heard me say fuck or shit, And not even after our next-door neighbor, Mrs. McAllister, told her I was standing in front of the house shouting fuck at the top of my lungs. She never did it because that was physical child abuse and enlightened Jews trafficked only in the emotional kind. That's how the book starts. Wow. So what led you to write and publish your memoir? I had finished my previous book, which was called Beaver Street, a history of modern pornography and the opening paragraphs in that book began in my father's candy store, which was around the corner from our house. And this was a scene that took place in 1961 when I'm sitting in the candy store, I'm like seven years old, eight years old, making change for newspapers. And my father and his cronies are hanging around talking about the dirty books that they have in the special rack in the, the back of the, of the store. And they're talking about World War II and their experiences in World War II. And when I finished Beaver Street, I looked at those opening paragraphs and I said, this is only scratching the surface, that there's something happening at this time and this place that's worth exploring. So it was time to start writing another book. And I started exploring that time and place, writing down everything I could remember. And I had like 400 single space pages of notes and anecdotes and fragments and things like like that. And I started looking through it. And what jumped out at me page after page were Nazis, the way everybody was always talking about the Nazis. And the original title of the book was Bobby in Naziland, and it was published like that. And I would be doing readings and things, and people would come up to me after readings, and they'd say things like, I really liked the book, but I hated the title. And then the pandemic happened. And up to that point, sales were okay. But after the pandemic, sales kind of went off the cliff. And I talked about this with my publisher and they felt that Bobby in Nazi land was not a good title for the pandemic. So they re-released the book 
as a, a Brooklyn memoir. I did wonder about the, the change in the title. So thanks so much for telling us that. So could we have another reading, please? Yes, oh, I'm sure. sorry, before we do, did you notice a change in sales once the title changed? Uh, no, not really. You know, sales have been creeping along, but the book is out there. And, you know, I found that my books tend to endure over the decades. And, you know, I think I'm still going to be promoting this, you know, based on what's happened with my previous books, I'm still going to be promoting this 10 years from now, 20 years from now. So, you know, it's a long road and, uh, you know, I intend to keep traveling it and, you know, I'll talk to anybody about my books who want to talk about it. Anyway, another reading. This is from chapter three called Heil Irwin. Irwin was my father's name. And for a lot of people, I use the real names in the book. For some people, I change their names. Anyway, these are real names. Okay, Heil Irwin, chapter three. Yes, the war had ended seven years before I was born, but that didn't mean it was over. It would never be over. Not as long as the people who lived through it remained alive. World War II, along with the ghost of the Brooklyn Dodgers, lingered like a mass hallucination on East 17th Street and in large swaths of the surrounding borough. It was no longer a shooting war, of course. It was a mop-up operation, a war of words and ideas, a constant pounding of more verbal nails into the Nazi coffin, a stake through the vampire Nazi heart, a daily confrontation with the knowledge that the Nazis weren't all dead, that some of them roamed free in South America, and that somehow the Third Reich might again rise from its ashes. Perhaps it was even a premonition that someday, after enough time had passed, certain people would begin to suggest that six million Jews were not systematically slaughtered in death camps, that it was all a big misunderstanding, a misinterpretation of history, that it was really typhus that had wiped them out, that it was an unavoidable public health catastrophe, no different than the bubonic plague. And even if it wasn't, who's to say that they didn't deserve it anyway? A day never passed when I didn't hear somebody express an opinion about the Nazis, usually my father. All you had to do to get him going was point to one of those cute little candy-colored Volkswagen Beetles parked on the street and say that its rear engine provided excellent traction in the snow, or that you were considering buying one because the price was so reasonable. Or if you really wanted to piss him off, you might try praising the superior quality and craftsmanship of the Mercedes-Benz, that magnificent Teutonic driving machine that had served as the official staff car of the Third Reich, a Jew at least a Jew with half a brain in his head, would never say such a thing. It was always some guy who said it, usually while thumbing through the latest issue of Motor Trend in my father's candy store. And every time it happened, my father, who I'd heard, though not from him, had liberated a death camp in the final days of the war and had seen the mountains of corpses and had smelled the decaying flesh and the skeletal survivors barely clinging to life covered in their own filth. It was the kind of smell that never left you, my mother said, would look the ignorant bastard in the eye and say, it's a Nazi car, schmuck. And if the schmuck continued to insist that the Mercedes was still the best-made car in the world, then my father would tell him that it was Jewish slave labor, courtesy of the concentration camps that built VWs and Mercedes. In fact, that's what he said about any product imported from the country he still called Nazi fucking Germany when he thought I wasn't listening. Yeah, we all hated the Nazis. 
if not necessarily their products. And if anybody didn't, he kept his full mouth shut about it. Because if you lived in Flatbush, you were surrounded by Jews. And Jews, having paid the price of blood, now own the Nazis outright. And we could do anything we wanted to them. It was our birthright. If we felt like it, we could kidnap Nazis off the streets of Argentina, drag their arrogant Nazi asses back to Israel and hang them from the nearest lamppost. And nobody except another Nazi would say boo, not to our faces anyway. Most people, if they knew it was good for them, would pat us on the back and give us a round of applause. Never again, motherfucker. Never again. Wow. So what was the process of writing the memoir like for you? I'm really curious about how you remember and reflect on the past. And of course, also what, if anything, might you have learned about yourself or your father or Flatbush through the process of remembering and writing and rewriting the book? Well, like I said before, I think the whole neighborhood, a huge portion of the neighborhood, because of what happened in the camps and, you know, just fighting a war, all these people were suffering from PTSD. And this obviously had an effect on the kids that there was just all this underlying emotional and physical violence going on. Like we didn't have knives and guns, but it was just fistfights were a common occurrence that we were just always beating the hell out of each other for no reason. You'd pass somebody on the street and you'd start punching them. And, you know, once I got out of Flatbush, I finally left when I started graduate school. I lived there from like 1952 to 1975. Once I got out of Flatbush, I just tried to blot all this out. I didn't want to think about it. I didn't want to think about the racism and the the hatred and the the violence and the stories about the gas chambers and, and all that. I just, I went for years without thinking about it. And then, you know, like I said, I wrote the opening paragraphs of the other book, Beaver Street, which took place in my father's candy store. And I said, you know, this is just scratching the surface. I got to dig into this and see what I can find. You know, I think there's another book here. And I started doing that for a, a couple of years. I just started writing down everything I could remember. And the more I remembered, the more I remembered. And then there's also all this stuff on the internet that like every toy I ever owned, every TV show I ever watched, it's all there. And yeah, it kind of sparked my memory and it just eventually it all started coming back so vividly. And that was how I wrote the book. I took those 400 single space pages and started started organizing it thematically. And, you know, like I said before, too, you know, one of the big themes, it was just Nazis, 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 everybody talking about the Nazis. And that was how the book became Bobby in Naziland, which I thought was a perfect title. It was kind of Mel Brooksian, Alice in Wonderland. And I was really surprised when people started coming up to me and saying they hated the title. I think it's really special that you listened to them as well, because like if your readers were telling you the one thing and you thought, okay, actually, what can I do about that? But also, I love what you said about remembering leading to more remembering. And I guess it's, it's a really fascinating way 
that memory can work, especially because mine doesn't work that way. So I'm really impressed that yours, you know, does. I love also the idea of using videos because like you said, the toys and the shows would be online. And so seeing how those might spark other memories is kind of fascinating for me. Yeah. If you spend a few years immersing yourself and thinking about a particular thing, you are going to remember it, assuming you have a functional brain. It's all there. And you just have to figure out how to access it. You access it by confronting it every day. And I did. Could we have our final reading, please? Sure. All right. This is from chapter nine, which is called The Great Candy Store Tragedy. And this is um, a section that people have told me it's one of their favorite parts of the book. It's about the Brooklyn Dodgers. And the New York Giants, the baseball team, not the football team. And so it goes. The Duke Snyder story, however, seemed to contradict everything I'd ever heard about the candy store. And strangely enough, it was my mother who liked to tell it. Because next to Jackie Robinson, Snyder was her favorite Dodger. And she happened to be in the store, six months pregnant with me, the afternoon early in the 1952 season that he walked in and said to my father, who was behind the counter, I hear you got the best egg creams on Church Avenue. Specialty of the house, my father said, proceeding to whip up one of his chocolate masterpieces. But he must have found it galling to wait on Snyder, because deep down, he probably thought that if a couple of breaks had gone the other way, he could have been the famous athlete a star running back on the New York football giants, maybe dropping down from Valhalla every so often to order an egg cream from the schnook on church Avenue. Snyder, who is living a block away on East 18th street on the good side of church Avenue, laid a dime on the counter, drank the egg cream, thanked my father and walked into the subway station next door to take the Brighton express one stop to Ebbets field for his game against the Boston Braves. That was the whole story. And yes, it lacks certain crucial details that I'd have liked to hear. Like who told Snyder that my father had the best egg creams on Church Avenue? One of his neighbors, perhaps? Or had another Dodger, like Gil Hodges, who also lived in the neighborhood, walked into the store and incognito sampled an egg cream. Did the Dodgers talk about my father's egg creams in the locker room? And if they were so good, how come Snyder never came back for another one? Did he find a better egg cream at a different candy store on another street? Or did he just move to Bay Ridge soon afterwards? Nobody knew. Still, every time I heard that story, and this is one I asked my mother to tell, it sounded like a fairy tale. It didn't seem possible that a major league baseball player, a center fielder who'd hit 407 home runs over the course of his career and would wind up in Cooperstown, no less, had ever set foot in my father's candy store. But the story was true, and I think Snyder's visitation goes a long way towards explaining my father's perverse hatred of the Brooklyn Dodgers and his love of the rival New York Giants. No team had caused the Dodgers as much misery as the Giants, and no more so than on the afternoon of October 3rd, 1951, in the polo grounds, in the bottom of the ninth inning of the playoff game that people would continue to talk about decades after it had happened, and both teams had long ago deserted New York for California. That was the day the Giants outfielder and third baseman Bobby Thompson came to bat against Ralph Branca with one out, runners on second and third, and the Giants, who'd come from 13 and a half games back to force the playoff series, 
trailing four to two. It was the primal sports myth that I was raised on that was infused into my soul. The most exciting thing that had ever happened in New York City. Something so amazing, nothing like it could ever happen again. Chesterfield Cigarettes, who'd sponsored the Giants broadcast, had given my father, who sold plenty of Chesterfields, a promotional 78 RPM recording of announcer Russ Hodges's play-by-play of Thompson's at-bat, the most famous call in the history of baseball, captured only by some guy in Brooklyn who was listening to the game on the radio and decided to turn on his tape recorder. The record was cracked, but still playable, and I played it all the time. Though my mother had taught me to hate the Giants, I loved the sound of ecstasy in Hodges's voice, scratching from too many cigarettes as he cries at the crack of the bat, There's a long drive. It's going to be, I believe, the Giants win the pennant. The Giants win the pennant. The Giants win the pennant, and they're going crazy. I don't believe it. I do not believe it. Thompson's three runs shot heard round the world. The miracle of Coogan's Bluff, the place in uptown Manhattan where the polo grounds were located, had propelled the Giants into the all-New York World Series against the Yankees and sent every Dodger fan in Brooklyn and beyond into a tearful state of deep and prolonged shock and despair. If my father let on that any of this was going through his head as he served that egg cream to the Duke of Flappish, who'd witnessed Thompson's home run from his position in center field, he never said. Oh, wow. So where can we buy a Brooklyn memoir? It's available everywhere books are sold. The easiest thing is to to get it from Amazon. It's available as an audio book too, though I didn't do the audio. And, you know, if you go into your local bookstore, if it's not on the shelf, they can, you know, get the book in if you prefer to buy from independent bookstores. So, um, you know, pretty much everywhere. Wonderful. Robert, thank you so much for being my guest, for reading to us from the book and for talking to us. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you, Yvonne. Uh, It was my pleasure and uh, I look forward to hearing the podcast. Thanks for listening to Bookable Space. If you don't already have the book and want to read more, buy it, borrow it from your local library, read it, and if you enjoy it, review it if you haven't already. I hope you'll join us for the next episode of Bookable Space, the audio literary salon with your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. Follow me on Twitter at YBattlefelton on Instagram on why I write Battle Felton for pictures, interview insights, and more.